Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Future of Jewish Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Hoffman. On this episode, I am joined by Salvador Litvak. He is a Chilean-American filmmaker and social media influencer who has written and directed two theatrically released feature films, When Do We Eat? in 2006 and Saving Lincoln in 2013. As the accidental Talmudist, he shares Jewish wisdom with more than 1 million followers on his social media accounts. Enjoy my conversation with Salvador Litvak. Salvador, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. You and I met once virtually two years ago at the very start of the pandemic about Izzy. You actually promoted Izzy, so I really appreciate you doing that. Uh, we're back at it two years uh, later, and I'm really excited to talk to you today because you've, you know, your story is just, I mean, you're a filmmaker and you couldn't have scripted it any better, as they would say. So, you know, before we get into the actual surprise of, ending, <laughs> definitely. And, and so before we get into, you know, what you're working on today and some of the stuff moving forward, why don't we go back and why don't you take us through the, you know, the beginning, so to speak, of where you came from and how you got to where you are today? I wasn't born in the United States. Uh, my accent uh, might not, you might not hear it in my voice, uh, but I'm a Latino. I was born in Santiago, Chile, uh, and came to the States when I was five. Uh, I was born in Chile. My father was born in Chile. My grandfather was born in Chile, uh, but my great-grandfather came from Ukraine. Uh, I always thought it was Odessa, but more recently I learned that we came from a little shtetl uh, known then as Chichelnitsky and now as Chichelnik. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, probably my great grandfather was, was a religious yid when he lived back in the shtetl. Uh, but by the time we got to Chile, there was, uh, not so much observance, uh, in the family. Chile is one of those countries, uh, now it's a little bit different, but certainly, uh, when I was born there, when my father and grandfather were growing up, where there's not conservative and reformed Judaism. There's just, you know, the Orthodox temple that people don't go to <laughs> if they're not very observant. Um, when we came to the United States, uh, we ended up uh, uh, joining a conservative synagogue uh, in a suburb of New York City. And I went to Hebrew school three days a week, uh, had my bar mitzvah, and I was not very enthusiastic uh, about our tradition and our faith. <clears throat> and so after I had the bar mitzvah, I, I was pretty much done. And it's sad because I was always uh, very spiritual, very curious uh, about God and uh, you know, the sort of like higher, greater world uh, than whatever is readily apparent to our senses. But it just seemed uh, like the Judaism I was exposed to wasn't about that. So uh, in my sort of spiritual journeys, uh, which I was, I was always a seeker, I didn't go to other religions, but I was involved in, uh, in meditation, in martial arts. I was a rower in college, uh, which has a very kind of mystical side to it in addition to the you know, grueling workouts, et cetera. But when the eight guys are all rowing in perfect synchronicity, you know, th th there's something special there that you touch sometimes. And, um, you know, but also uh, um, I got into drumming and Grateful Dead shows and uh, certainly reading a lot about uh, philosophy and, and just always in search of this other, this sense of other and purpose and what's really going on. And, 
you know, it, it seemed obvious to me that the world didn't burst into being for no reason. So there must be a creator uh, and the creator would surely be interested in the creatures. Uh, and I was one of the creatures interested in him and just always looking for that point of connection. Uh, and, and martial arts was a, something especially uh, and, and sort of meditating and breathing and, and those kinds of experiences and just the occasional moment, you know, in nature when there's just that moment of profound peace that might have that, that touch of it. Uh, so to flash forward, I, um, after college, I went to law school. I worked as a lawyer for a year and a half. That wasn't for me. I went to a film school at UCLA that brought me out here to LA in the film business. Um, a few years of that. And then in 1997, uh, my grandmother, uh, Magda, uh, lay dying. It was, it was the end of her life. She, I was very close with her. She was a Holocaust survivor. My mother's side is from Hungary. And uh, my grandmother carried my mother as an infant through a concentration camp, a really miraculous story. I mean, just think how hard it is to take care of a baby anywhere. <laughs> How about in a concentration camp? Um, but it was an amazing story. And uh, but my grandmother lost her husband. Uh, he died at Dachau uh, in the Shoah. And um, and she was always very happy for the people who lost family and relatives, and then you know started family again and remarried after the war. But for her, there was only her husband Imre, and and she would wait for him. You know, so 53 years she waited uh, to be reunited with him. And when I got the call that, uh, you know, she's, she's, she's at the end, uh, I went home. I was at her bedside along with my mother and my brother. And uh, it was a very, very powerful shared death experience. Uh, just to summarize, I saw her soul uh, leave this world. Um, and, and be welcomed, you know, just as it says in the Torah that you'll be gathered unto your people. Uh, and my grandfather was there. I, you know, I recognized him from all the photographs of him uh, in my house. And, uh, and he welcomed her you know, to that world. And I was so stunned by what I'd seen. I mean, I was always a seeker, but I never saw things. I, I never had some kind of a vision. In fact, I even doubted that I saw it. I, I, I figured it must have happened in my imagination. Um, but it was so real and so you know, imminent to me and so important uh, that it really changed my life. I, I went, when I got back to LA, I, I just needed to honor her in some way. Uh, and I said, you know, this thing that I've been looking for in all these other traditions uh, maybe I should try my own backyard. Maybe the Judaism that I was exposed to as a kid isn't all there is. Uh, and at that point, I, I started asking around, and I was fortunate that I live in a big city where there's a lot of really wonderful teachers. Um, and I started learning from various rabbis. And, uh, you know, any rabbi that you learn with sooner or later will mention the Talmud, usually sooner. And, uh, and I, so I had this great curiosity about the Talmud. It was obviously a great repository of Jewish wisdom, but I didn't go to yeshiva. I don't have that background. I didn't know how to approach it. And when I would go to this store, the mitzvah store uh, here in LA, it's still here, um, a Judaica and gift shop, uh, but also a bookstore. And I would see, okay, there's the Talmud. Josh, you're a young man. I don't know if you've ever seen a Encyclopedia Britannica. 
uh, like we had when we were kids. But you know, the Encyclopedia Britannica is these very handsome, large volumes, and 23 of them contain the wisdom of humanity. Well, the Talmud is 73 volumes <laughs> containing the wisdom of the Jews. It's just vast. Uh, so vast that it seemed like, I guess this is not for me. I mean, where would I begin? How do I start? It's all so incomprehensible. The organization is not clear at all. And uh, I said, maybe in some other life, you know, I'll have the opportunity to learn Talmud. But I just kept getting drawn to it. And every time I would have an errand in that store, buying a gift for somebody or, a, you know, a kippa or tzitzis or something as, as sort of getting closer and closer uh, to Torah and mitzvahs, um, I would look at those volumes and I said, finally, I, mean, I don't know, the dozenth visit that I was there, it was 2005, and I thought, what am I so intimidated by? They're just books. Uh, I went to Harvard, I was an English major, I have a law degree, a film degree, Nina and I, my wife and I are book people, you know, our house is filled with books. I said, I'll just get book one of the Talmud and see what it's like. Uh, you know, how bad could it be? <laughs> so I figured out the first book of the Talmud is Brachas. Uh, I found a Brachas on the shelf. I took it down. I walked to the counter and the kid at the register, Zach Plotzker, says to me, uh, you're doing Daf Yomi. So I said, what's Daf Yomi? And he went like this. <laughs> just, just for people to, because they're not getting the, the visual as I'm getting. So you, you basically... He's looking at you like a deer in the head. Like, yes, I, he lowered his glasses down his nose and looked at me over them as if to say, are you kidding me? And I thought, wow, Dafyomi must be a code. And if you don't know the code, you're not allowed to read the books. You know, I'd heard that Kabbalah, you're supposed to be 40 years old. Perhaps to read the Talmud, you need to be a rabbi or a yeshiva graduate you know, none of which I was. And so I figured, oh, now he's got to get rid of me without embarrassing me. How awkward. But Zach said, well, Daf Yomi is a program where people around the world are reading the entire Talmud on the same schedule, one page a day. It takes seven and a half years. And today is day one. So I happened to buy book one of the Talmud on day one of a seven and a half year cycle. I mean, the odds against that are ridiculous. And so I said, okay, God, I get the message. I guess I'm doing Dafyomi. And, uh, you know, a lot of people start Dafyomi who are yeshiva graduates and they don't finish. It's such a big commitment. It's an hour a day, every day, seven days a week, seven and a half years. You know, you're getting married, do your daf. You're sick do your daf. It's Yom Kippur, do your daf. You're directing a movie, working 20, 25 hours a day, do your daf. <laughs> um, but I felt like God put the book in my hands. It gave me a mission. And so I had to stay with it. And uh, in the beginning, it was certainly, you know, nearly incomprehensible. The art scroll did a wonderful job of, it's not just a translation. It really is a master teacher teaching it to you uh, through their elucidation and all the footnotes. It was still so difficult, but day after day after day after day, I started to grasp the sort of rhythms and language and approach uh, of Chazal, of our sages, uh, as they debate, uh, you know, what exactly is, what does God want from us? You know, it, the, the law is spelled out in the Torah, but the Torah is sort of like shorthand for what the law is. 
You know, for example, in the Shema, we read every day that uh, you shall bind these words as a sign upon your hand and they shall be a symbol before your eyes. What does that mean? You wouldn't know what tefillin is just from reading that line in the Torah. Uh, but that was one of the oral teachings given at Mount Sinai. And that oral teaching, which contained a few specific oral laws, uh, all the way back at Mount Sinai. And by the way, today, I know when people are listening to this, that uh, Shavuos is coming up in a few days. We celebrate the greatest day in human history when the Bible was given to the world, when the Torah was given to the Jewish people. Uh, and some of these teachings that were given on that day were oral, uh, but also the oral process began that day. And, and so that the written Torah would be accompanied by a process of teaching teacher to student, teacher to student throughout the generations, uh, so that as new questions would come up in history, as the world changed, as technology was added to the world, et cetera, there would always be a way for the, the elders, the sages of that generation to answer questions according to the law and the tradition. That's why the Talmud has grown so vast over the millennia. Um, and it was just a, just a wonderful journey for me. I really enjoyed it. It's almost like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get on a particular day. The Talmud is organized roughly by topics, but the sages will digress at the drop of a hat into completely unrelated topics. Legends, stories, laws, science. It's amazing. And, um, and I stayed with it and I completed Shas, as it's known, uh, in 2012. I went to a Siyum, a completion ceremony, a giant stadium. Uh, in New Jersey with 93,000 Jews celebrating uh, this program of learning uh, and dancing a massive horror. And then I couldn't help but think about the Nazis who filled stadiums celebrating they were going to destroy the Jews, wipe us out, burn all our books. And now those bastards are gone from this world. And there we were, 93,000 93, strong dancing a horror, celebrating our learning and our tradition. Uh, I started blogging about it, uh, began as a blog at the Jewish Journal called The Accidental Talmudist. Uh, and to promote the blog, uh, I started a Facebook page with my wife, Nina. And it's the Facebook page that really took off. It was a good format for us that we could post every day. But one day, it's you know, just a little one sentence wisdom teaching, another day, a live video, Another day, musical guests. We've had Matis Yahu sing in our backyard, Nisim Black, uh, Zusha, you know, Eighth Day. So many acts um, come through uh, since this last cycle, which began in 2020 and through COVID. I'm, I'm teaching Dafyomi every day. I have a thousand students in my daily online shear. And, uh, and we have a nonprofit, you know, that supports this and uh, an app that is coming and all of it. I mean, I, I never could have imagined that I would be doing this uh, and that it would fall to me, you know, to, to share Judaism and Jewish wisdom with so many people around the world. We have over a million followers in 70 countries. Uh, we estimate that probably, you know, 60% are not Jewish, uh, but who are really attracted to an unbroken wisdom tradition uh, stretching back so long, so authentic, uh, and that really helps people, you know, shed light on their own faith traditions. 
you know, what's beautiful about Judaism in, in, in this sense is that you don't have to be Jewish to appreciate Jewish wisdom. Everyone had the Talmud teaches everyone has a place in the world to come. Uh, and if you're not Jewish, you know, you've got seven commandments. <laughs> They're not so easy to follow all seven. Uh, the first one is to know God and knowing God requires study and learning and having a regular learning program in your life. Uh, and that's something that, uh, that we offer. So if people are interested, they should definitely check us out at accidentaltalmudist.org. Amazing. Great intro and a lot to pick apart there. I want to go back, though, to, to sort of the beginning of growing up in Chile. And, you know, you mentioned that there wasn't really this whole, you know, Jewish denomination thing that is very prevalent in the United States and in other places in the world, but especially the U.S., you know, conservative, reform, reconstructionist, modern Orthodox, Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox. I mean, it seems like every few years there's a new denomination. Yeah. And I'm just curious, you know, from, from coming from a, a culture and a place that doesn't have that sort of denominational uh, impact and influence to a place that does, you know, what are some of the things that you can pass on to us, the people that come from these heavily denominational areas? Because I've come to, to learn that actually the, the denominations, you know, people say, well, yeah, they're great because it's options and, you know, everyone has their own path and this, that and the other. And that's true. But it's also true that it divides us and it actually creates, I believe, uh, friction and conflict amongst Jews. You know, Jew on Jew hate is what I called it in a recent essay. Um, and so I'm just curious, like coming from a different type of culture in that in that way, what are some of the things that maybe you can impart on us that are not used to growing up in that sort of way? I mean, I was five when I left, so it's not like I have so much experience with it, but, you know, talking with my family and learning about it, and I've also seen it in other places uh, in my travels. I do a lot of public speaking, and I think it's, it's, it's definitely unnecessarily divisive. Um, you know, this, this kind of shoving people into boxes where they're only going to meet people in their own box. Uh, is not healthy and is not good for the Jewish people. And I don't think it's what, what God intended for us. Um, it's so important to love your fellow Jew. Uh, and I, I, my wife is very fond of uh, the teachings of Avigdor Miller. And, uh, you know, something I think that Rabbi Miller taught is, you know, that Yid, right? And, and by the way, I'm wearing this T-shirt. I mean, the word Yid that sometimes I use it on my page and then older Jews say, how can you use that? That's a dirty word. That's an insult. You know, the non-Jews would call Jews Yids and mean it as an insult. And I'm like, okay, Yid is what we call ourselves. <laughs> if, if Jew hate from the outsiders is gonna lead us to be ashamed of our own name, uh, then it's a sad day indeed. But at any rate, uh, he would say, you know that Yid that bothers you uh, that he's irritating and you don't really want to deal with him. That's the yid you have to love. <laughs> Your fellow Jew is that one who irritates you, you know? And, and by that same token, even within our denominations, we always joke around that the guy who's a little more observant than you, he's crazy. And the guy who's a little less observant than you, he's a Gentile. You know, and, and, and these judgments that we put on, and, and I, wherever, whoever I am, wherever I am, I'm perfect, right? I'm, I'm in the middle, I'm in the perfectly balanced place. And of course, that's ridiculous. Um, so, you know, I, I think to the extent that we can open our institutions and find, you know, events and event spaces uh, where we're just associating in friendship, 
with our fellow Jews, it's so important. Uh, and, and, and not to think, you know, that because they're part of a different denomination or they have a different belief or this or that, the other thing, you don't have to agree with their judgments or actions in a lot of respects uh, to nevertheless treasure them as a fellow holy soul. Well, I think the other thing that's interesting about your story is that, you know, most, uh, maybe, maybe most is a strong word, but I'll say many, uh, a lot of Jews today, in Israel, by the way, as well, Israel not excluded, um, are surface level Jews, right? I mean, they might celebrate a few holidays a year. They might, I don't know, go to a Jewish funeral, God forbid. They might uh, go to a Jewish wedding once a year, twice a year. They're infrequently in Jews, what I would call them. And I think your uh, story of how you you didn't just come back to your Judaism, but you you really did a deep dive. I mean, this is some serious commitment and a depth that you know, vast majority of people in general don't do, let alone Jews. And my feeling is that the deeper you go into your Judaism, I wrote an, an essay about this called Deep Judaism. The deeper that you go into your Judaism, I believe the less relevant the denominations become because you actually end up becoming what I would call more like the other because you start getting more perspectives and more, uh, you know, historical context and religious context and spiritual context and uh zionist context and so on and so forth and that to me like you know that's most people don't know this and i didn't know this until about a year ago that is that is theodore herzl's story he was a well-to-do man he married into a very rich jewish family uh journalist playwright and he understood that the way to deal with jewish questioning jewish suffering jewish uncertainty or insecurity is to actually go deep into your judaism and Engage. there you'll find a stronger Jewish identity, pride, et cetera. So I think your story speaks to, to that, you know, that, that point. I want to ask you a question about, you know, you, you mentioned that you started the Accidental Talmudist with a Jewish journal. And I, I don't necessarily want to get into the politics of why it didn't work out or what happened there. But what I really love about you is that you basically said, listen, I'm going to do this on my own, you and your wife, and, and I'm sure you have some extra help as well here and there, but most people in the Jewish world, they're just going to these organizations, going to these institutions, and basically saying, hey, help me make this come to life, and you went there, whatever happened, happened, I'm, you, you don't have to go into that if you don't want to, but then apparently you left the Jewish Journal somehow, some way, and you've built this brand, and you know, you're just getting started. To me, like, T take us through, you know, that transition period going from what I would call a Jewish institution in the Jewish journal to going on your own. And I believe being more successful because of that. Uh, well, it's not that we, we never really left the journal. Uh, and in fact, we're still partnered with them uh, on our weekly table for five, uh, where I have, you know, five writers from different places in the Jewish world comment on one verse uh, from the Parsha. And we publish that both at the Jewish Journal and on our own website. Um, the, the, the reason that sort of it didn't continue simply as a blog at the Jewish Journal is because it was a little restrictive in the sense that what's a blog? A blog is 800 words once a week. Um, and that was just a little too structured uh, for, for what I wanted to do and for what Judaism is. I mean, Judaism is so all-encompassing uh, that there was just much more to do, you know? And, and, and so 
once live video became a thing on uh, on Facebook, man, the early days of live video were freaking awesome. It was just like, turn on the camera, you have 500 viewers. Now there's such a competition for eyeballs. Um, but uh, we, we just had more to say and more, you know, um, you know, more formats uh, that we wanted to say it in uh, than were possible in an 800 word article a week. Um, but this idea that you're mentioning that, you know, relying on institutions uh, to help you connect. I mean, it's funny, we, we touched just briefly before and the fact I'm a filmmaker, you know, so Nina and I, uh, we actually made the classic Jewish comedy, uh, When Do We Eat? Uh, somewhat irreverent psychedelic Passover comedy. Uh, and the movie Saving Lincoln uh, about Abraham Lincoln and his closest friend, Ward Hill Lamb. And, and now we're making a thriller, Guns and Moses. And when I talk to young filmmakers, something I say to them always is, you can't wait until your movie is made to start building an audience. I mean, that's, that's how it was 50 years ago or 30 years ago or even 20 years ago, but certainly not today. Um, you know, then you would rely on a studio and a distributor uh, to take your precious baby, your movie that you, work, you worked so hard on for years, uh, you know, and if, to them it was just a, a widget, right? I mean, they, they want to make a lot of money on it, so they're going to do something about it, but not with precious care and loving attention, and maybe it'll succeed and maybe it won't, and if it doesn't show signs of success immediately, they're done with you and they're on to the next widget. Uh, but today, where everyone can self-publish, and that's what social media is, uh, and build an audience and build a community, you have to find ways uh, to give something of value to a community that will embrace you long before your movie comes out. Um, and so that when your movie does come out, you know, you can open that movie. <laughs> starting with your community that is that is anxiously awaiting it and 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 you know deeply interested in what you're doing uh and likewise you know if you're going to be working in the jewish community and you have something to say uh you know just start putting it out there and what's also good you know a movie you know it takes so many years until you have a finished product but social media uh, you know, whether you're writing articles or doing interviews or videos or memes or, you know, just, just, just little bites of wisdom, right away you see what's working, what's not, uh, and naturally that's going to trigger evolution uh, in your thinking and your communication and how you reach your audience. Uh, and if you just stubbornly keep doing what you're doing, you know, feeding an audience of, you know, a limited size, okay, fine. Uh, but if you, you know, are more supple than that and, and, and take feedback and, and, you know, see what's working and what's not and run with what's working uh, and grow, so then you can have a lot more impact. Yeah, that's a phenomenal point. What's something that you've learned in this process of, you know, developing your social media platforms, your website? I know you mentioned an app now coming up. What's something you've learned, you know, in coming from maybe a more traditional world of filmmaking in this sort of self-publishing world where you can build your own audience, build your own community? What's something that you've really, I'm sure you've learned a lot, but what's one thing that is like, wow, like that's, that's mind-blowing or that's, that's way more significant than maybe I thought? 
I'm just thinking how to answer that question. <clears throat> I mean, one thing is you gotta be flexible uh, and sort of listen to the numbers, but not be obsessed with the numbers. Um, so, so what I mean by that is, first of all, all the platforms and their algorithms keep changing. So, you know, what was super successful and viral last month may work this month and it may not. Um, and, and so you, you have to be attuned, uh, you know, to, to how the platforms are operating, what their values are, uh, what the audience is doing, what its patience level is, what it isn't. Um, you know, one thing that we were a little bit concerned about is, you know, the sort of dance with the lady that got you there, right? So Facebook was really good for us. And that's where we happened to grow and we sort of grew with Facebook. Uh, but we never really went to Twitter. It just, it just kind of, we didn't, we didn't focus on it. We didn't put attention there. Um, Instagram, we have a bit of a presence, uh, and that's kind of in the Facebook universe. Uh, but when TikTok came along and just grew so, so rapidly, uh, and you know, God forgive me, I enjoy TikTok. Uh, it's very addictive. You have to be careful with that. But you can so quickly train it to, you know, show you the kind of content that you want to see. It's enjoyable. So I, I saw, all right, well, I want to give something in this uh, realm that should work. Uh, and it won't be the same as what we're putting out on Facebook. So I started doing a series, the 72 greatest Jewish jokes. Um, and that, you know, it's, it's not huge, but in a few months, it's grown to 50,000 followers. Uh and, and, you know, that was, that was a way to expand into another place that I had to be very, you know, I had to be really mindful of what would work on TikTok. It's not going to be the same as what works on our website or what works uh, on Facebook. So, you know, it's not, it's not rocket science. It's not earth shattering to tell you that you have to be mindful of what platform you're working on uh, and what's working and what's not. But, but definitely as the attention span of the whole world, you know, steadily shrinks, you've got to be able to say what you want to say quickly uh, and efficiently and, you know, have, have that lead right so at I the top. Definitely. I think it's a very interesting point that you make because, you know, I started Izzy to, to really buck the trend of short form content and say, listen, you can't tell Israel's story exclusively in a short term way, which is primarily what was happening before I started Izzy. Um, I think you need both. You need short form and long form. You need short yes. form to promote the long form. You need long form for depth and context and nuance. Um, and you right, as a filmmaker- was good for Izzy, right? I mean, Yeah, of course. For sure. But, <laughs> we watch but, a movie a night, you know, so. But it's yeah, I think it's, but I think at the same time, you know, I think that living in an exclusively short form world is dangerous for Judaism because it simplifies Judaism and it oh, yeah. uh, makes, you know, it makes you put it in a box. Oh, this is a religion or this is whatever. Maybe some people might call it a nationality. Uh, I mean, it is because Israel is a nationality and it's a Jewish state. But to me, there's at least 10 different uh areas or you know buckets of judaism and i'm just concerned that maybe short form minimizes the depth and the context that come with those buckets in those areas i do want to ask you though about um 
you know, you made a comment that you estimate about 60, 60%, if I heard you correctly, are non-Jews. And I'm not surprised at all that's the numbers, more or less, that we see at Izzy. I also had intel prior to starting Izzy that the highest uh, engaging social media channels of the Israeli government and foreign affairs, essentially, uh, is the Arabic world. We know there's no Jews living in the Arabic world anymore, you know, by and large. I mean, there might be a few here and there, but by and large, they, they left. So that means there are also non-Jews that are very much interested in Israel and, and things of that nature. Um, at the same time, I also feel that the Jewish world, what I would call the organized Jewish world, uh, really ignores the non-Jewish community, right? I mean, it's kind of it's a shame because, of... yeah. Well, I don't know if it's, I mean, maybe it's suspicion. I think it's also the fact that the, the organized Jewish world, I mean, there's many reasons, right? And, and we have to simplify it for the sake of time. But one of the things that I think, you know, when you're building a, a nonprofit and you have donors, right? And your donors are probably Jewish by and large. And, you know, to go to your donors and say, yeah, we're going to take X percent of this money that you gave us and we're going to quote unquote market or sell or serve non-Jews. I don't know if that would fly with most Jewish donors. I think they'd say, what do you mean you're going to serve non-Jews? You're a Jewish organization. You should only serve our people. So I think that's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, maybe this dynamic that I'm describing exists. I just think that by sheer numbers, I mean, you talk about the number 60%. That's obviously a very significant number. We see similar numbers at Izzy. And I just think in general, when you look at the way of the world today with globalization and with mass media on a global level, people are very interested in other cultures and other, you know, nations and uh, histories and uh, you know, you don't have to go to another country today to experience that place necessarily. That'll get, by the way, even better with virtual reality when you can travel virtually. Um, and so, you know, I just, I just find that Judaism is in a prime position to serve the non-Jewish communities as well as, of course, the Jewish communities, and that the everyday person, regardless if you're religious, regardless if, you know, you live in the Western world, the Eastern world, what have you, uh, and so on and so forth, can derive tremendous value from, you know, this thing that we call Judaism. And I'm just curious if you could offer some more insight into, you know, if there's any anecdotal evidence, so to speak, that maybe you see with comments or emails that you get or conversations yeah, that I you mean, have with your students. You, yeah, it's a great point that you're making. And <clears throat> I mean, we have different kinds of donors, but when you're talking about the, uh, you know, the sort of well-heeled Jewish donors, uh, that are very much connected to Judaism and the tradition and are funding a Kirov effort uh, to help disconnected Jews reconnect with Judaism. Uh, why should they be so interested, you know, that our content is also serving non-Jews? Uh, and one thing I'll say to them is it's, it, it's, you know, it's just a kind of human nature psychology, as it were, that often we have contempt for that which is too familiar to us and we think we know what it is and dismiss it until we see that a stranger values it and then all of a sudden it starts to become valuable to us again you know and so it, we've seen many times that Jews who had kind of turned their back on their tradition because they thought they knew what it was and then they see how much non-Jews value it they say, well, wait a minute, what, what am I missing here? Because uh, I thought it was all really boring and silly and, you know, archaic and superstitious and uh, 
but these people have found it so valuable. Maybe I should take a second look and then they're surprised by what they see. Um, I mean, that experience that I had, you know, it's just repeated so often in America. And it's been said that, you know, uh, some of the most harmful people, you know, in, in, in the last, you know, maybe not now, but in past decades, were these Hebrew school teachers that turned off a generation of Jews to the Misora, to the tradition. Um, the way we like to describe it is that imagine you've never tried sushi and then somebody gives you three-day-old sushi from the supermarket and said, here, this is sushi. And you're like, this sucks. <laughs> and then you never try sushi again. And so you lost that chance, you know, to go to Nobu, <laughs> like really amazing premium, super expensive sushi that would have completely changed your mind about what sushi is. Uh, and there's just sadly so many Jews that were only exposed to a, a very watered down, unchallenging, compromised, boring version of Judaism and said to themselves, okay, that's Judaism. I don't need that. I'll go do something else. Uh, and then they wake up, you know, in their 50s and 60s thinking that, you know, did I miss something in life? Like, what's the meaning of life? I, I just, you know, did my job every day and okay, now I have some retirement money and I'm playing golf and like, what, you know? We get a lot of people kind of in that age group who, who reconnect with us and they're like, oh, this is what Judaism is, you know? They're, they're so, it, it's like, if you're not stimulated, if you're not engaged, if your mind isn't firing on all cylinders when you are uh, learning a, a Jewish text, okay, so you have the wrong teacher, the wrong classroom, the wrong context, the wrong approach, uh, because it is nothing but fascinating and stimulating. Um, now, that's not to say that every page of Talmud is fascinating and stimulating, so sometimes you have to, you know, just invest some time before you start reaping those gains, you know, in the same way that you don't go to the gym, you know, for one day, walk out and you have all the benefits of increased health and fitness, et cetera. I mean, you got to put in some time. You got to give that commitment. Um, but, you know, don't turn your back on sushi because you had three-day-old supermarket sushi. Uh, and you got to give this a chance. And it's funny, I, uh, I, I play golf. I'm actually coming to Israel this summer as the coach of the U.S. Uh, Maccabee Masters golf and Grandmasters golf teams. And, um, and so, you know, often just get matched with strangers, Jewish, not Jewish. And, uh, you know, and I end up telling them I'm the accidental Talmudist and what that is. It just comes up in conversation. And people will say, all right give me some Jewish wisdom. And that's, that's a challenge right there. <laughs> I, I got to deliver something intriguing, you know, in that, with a 30 second answer, or maybe this is another person that's going to miss that opportunity. Uh, so when I'm challenged like that, I will go to Shimon Benzoma, a saying that uh, most people have heard from, from Pierre K. Avos, but they haven't heard the whole quote, right? So most people have heard who is rich, one who is content with what he has. But there's three other bits of wisdom in that same teaching. Who is wise? One who learns from every person. Who is honored? 
one who honors others. And who is strong? One who conquers his impulse. You know, and that's a great little bite-sized nugget uh, that people say, oh, you find stuff like that in the Talmud? Maybe I want to learn more. So, you know, something that just came to mind as, uh, as we were talking is, you know, you're a filmmaker, you're a content creator, you know, show form, you know, long form, you're working on your third film, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Why don't we turn Dafio Me into a daily soap opera, into a daily comedy sketch, into a daily TV show? I mean, there's, there's some people doing stuff like that. Uh... Uh, what's this woman's name? Miriam something. She'd probably be a good guest for your podcast if you haven't had her already. Yeah, she's uh, coming on in a few weeks. There you go. She's doing doc reactions on TikTok. I mean, it's 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 very interesting. I I would like to have a conversation with her. I think she characterizes herself as an atheist. She she's very irreverent, uh, sometimes raucous, uh, in sort of discussing what went on on that page. But hey, you know. She's engaging with the text and she's probably leading others to also that wouldn't have otherwise. And that's positive. Um, it, it just depends on, on you know, who's gonna approach it and how they want to approach it. Uh, but you know, there is the page every day for seven and a half years. So to produce content out of that would be some kind of incredible commitment. You need a big team of people uh, to do that. Um, I'm teaching it every day on uh, live on Facebook and YouTube at uh, 6 p.m. Pacific, Sunday through Thursday, noon on Friday, when Shabbos ends here in L.A. on Saturday nights. And uh, usually I'm teaching for about 45 minutes to an hour uh, and taking questions at the end. Uh, a lot of people are with me live. Others watch the replay over the next few hours. Uh, and that's, you know, immersing in that day's page. Right. And, and so and that's it's an amazing journey to be on because you just never know what you're going to find that day. And there are stretches that are really tough. I mean, right now we're in tractate Yavamos. I mean, doing the laws of leverage marriage, which at times are so intricate. And you're trying to keep track of the cousins, husband, second wife uh, who's prohibited to the new husband. But not yet. You know, and it's like just keeping the, the, the sort of sets and subsets straight is difficult. Other times, I mean, we're talking about body parts and sexuality and gender and homosexuality uh, and what's permitted, what's prohibited. And it's almost like, you know, like, I, like, I, like I have a bunch of, you know, ladies in their 50s and 60s and 70s in the class. <laughs> like, oh, God, I can't believe I'm discussing them with this, uh, this with them. Um, you know, in other days, it's just absolutely fascinating wisdom teachings about how to have a better life and a better marriage and a better business and a better friendship. <clears throat> and you just don't know what you're going to find. So, you know, one thing that we're all going to be asked, right, there, there, there are certain questions the Talmud tells us, there's certain questions that will be asked when we die and leave this world, when we come to the world to come. Uh, and the, the heavenly court will sort of have an inquiry with us, you know, and to, say, to, to determine where we're going next. And by the way, the Jewish version of the afterlife is, is quite different than what the culture. We have heaven and hell, though they're certainly not called that, um, but very different uh, approach to what that means. And 
most people are going to heaven, but there's an infinite number of levels in heaven and where you go and where you end up. But at any rate, when you get there, you're asked these questions. Uh, the first question is, were you honest in business? You know, meaning when nobody was watching and you knew you weren't going to get caught, you know, did you, did, did you let a few pennies, uh, did you make an error of a few pennies in your own favor? Uh, because it was easier to do that than, man, you know, or were you rigorously honest knowing that you have to be a mensch and you're a holy soul and God is watching everything that you do because he loves you and is rooting for you to make the right choice every time, even in private. And the second question is, did you set aside regular times for Torah study? You know, and, and that you need that regular time. So if, if you're somebody's listening to this and they're thinking, well, maybe I, I like what you're saying, Sal, maybe I'll engage a little more. I mean, I'm not ready to go to synagogue for an hour in the morning and half an hour in the evening and learn for an hour every day. I'm not ready to do that yet. You don't have to do that yet. But what would be great is if you set an alarm that goes off at the same time every day. Uh, and when the alarm goes off, first, it could be a gratitude alarm. You could say, thank you, God. I'm alive, I'm healthy, I have so much good going on in my life. And if you just did that for 15 seconds, you already have a regular prayer practice, then you're way ahead of the game. And then if you added to it, uh, you know, there's a thousand different apps. We'll have one soon, you know, Chabad, Aish, Hayenu, uh, Steinsaltz, there's so many, uh, and just get a quick hit. Of, of, of Jewish learning. I mean, it could literally be 60 seconds, but at the same time, every day, you'll find that there's a lift in your step and you're engaged in something that is older and wiser than you. Uh, you'll find yourself naturally drawn to start learning some more. And a person who is, who's got a relationship with God, who's praying regularly at some level, who's learning regularly at some level, that person is not gonna reach the end of their life and say, what was it all for? Because you'll know, because you're engaged in it and you'll feel that even if you don't have, you, cer you certainly won't have all your questions answered, life is a mystery, uh, but you'll know that you've engaged in that mystery and that you, you, you went some part of the way toward fulfilling your mission in this world. What I think makes you unique is that, you know, as a teacher, as an influencer, uh, and so on and so forth is that, you know, you're very relatable. I find that maybe, uh, you know, somebody who is orthodox or ultra-orthodox who dresses the part, um, you know, that, that can be intimidating for some people who, who don't necessarily subscribe to that lifestyle and, and way of thinking and doing. Whereas you, you know, you're, you kind of have your feet, I would say, in, in both both rooms, you know, you're, by the look of it, you're not overly religious, so to speak, but at the same time, you do talk about God and you do talk about prayer and, and, and that's, and that, and those type of things. So I, I find that, you know, we need more people like you in the Jewish world, people that are relatable, that are relatable for Jews, that are relatable for non-Jews, uh, that can understand the modern person, but still bring in ancient and, uh, you know, historic uh, wisdom and text and learning and philosophy and so forth and i'm just curious if you could share with us you know how you how you play in both those realms because i think it's very challenging and also very effective 
I think it's important uh, to be visual. Uh, one thing that we said at the beginning uh, when we started doing this, no man with beard in front of bookcase. <laughs> it's just like so much of the you know, Torah video in the world is the guy with a long beard in, in front of a bookcase. Um, and uh, I mean, you know, I mean, we're Orthodox Jews now. I, I guess we probably probably call us modern Orthodox with a Hasidic bent. Uh, but, but, you know, a long time ago, a mentor of mine, and I miss him so much, uh, is a guy named Schwartzy, really famous here in the LA Jewish world. Uh, he, came, he came out here as a Chabad rabbi, uh, the first campus Chabad rabbi at UCLA, and ended up forming his own organization called Chai Center. And uh, he was really taken from this world too young um, a few years ago. But, uh, but Schwartz used to say, you know, what's important is not so much where on the ladder you are, but what direction you're moving. You know, and, uh, and sometimes you see people will kind of reconnect with the tradition and get super enthusiastic uh, and dedicate a ton of time and energy to it right away. And, you know, often they're setting themselves up for burnout. Um, so you have to be a little bit careful about that. And our journey was, was very gradual. Um, though I would say to people, one thing you got to do as soon as possible is get Shabbos into your life. Um, because like, if you're not keeping Shabbos, you just don't know what you're missing. Uh, to have that, 24, that 25 hours unplugged, you know, it's almost like more important than getting, to, you should get to synagogue, you should daven, you should sing, you should you know, get to a Karlbach minion where the singing is going to be really spirited and fun. Uh, but this turning off the phones and the TV and all the digital input for 25 hours, like you don't know how much you need that until you do it. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, yeah, I really needed that. And thank God, even though, you know, I wouldn't say we were, we were Orthodox Jews, you know, when our kids were born and when they were little, that we always did. And uh, other parents, you know, that we know who, who don't live that life, uh, like they just can't get their kids off that phone ever. Um, and like when you know that you can get off it for 25 hours or here we have upcoming Shabbos and a two day Chag of Shavuot. So it'll be three days. Like when you know you can do that. So you know that you're not really tethered to that technology. Um, and it's so, so valuable. Um, I definitely, as you say, kind of, kind of live in both worlds. I mean, as a filmmaker, um, as an athlete, uh, as a, you know, as, as, as a reader, I'm just a voracious reader uh, and, and consumer of, of entertainment. Uh, and, and I love, I just live life. I, lo I, lo I love life. I love people. I love to be around them. Uh, and Judaism doesn't ask you to go live in a cave. You know, it, it's not an ascetic religion. You, you, you know, we, we give thanks to God uh, and glory to God in this world and in this life. And it takes a lot of work and sacrifice, but it is not about renouncing, you know, science or modernity uh, at all. That's, that, that, that's, that, that, that is not part of Judaism. There are certain things you can't do, uh, but it doesn't involve removing yourself from the world. And, 
you know, to the extent that, uh, that, that I can communicate how to be, uh, you know, spiritually fulfilled and in relationship with God and the tradition uh, while being a modern person, you know, it, Maybe that's why God sent all this my way, because I never could have expected to be doing what I'm doing. And it's quite true that it's very important to the accidents on what is platform that I am not a rabbi. You know, I'm not a rabbi. And so when questions of law come up like that, that need a rabbi to answer them, I right away say, I'm not a rabbi. You should check with your rabbi. You should get a rabbi if you don't have one in your life. Um, but I am not intimidating, as you say, in that way. Uh, and I'm sharing, you know, my journey and how I live in a very open way, sometimes very vulnerable. And I guess people appreciate that. Last question for you. You know, we talked about you as a filmmaker. You mentioned the third film you're working on, which is Guns and Moses. Take us into what that's going to be about and, you know, why you why you were inspired to to go with it. Yeah, we're, we're really excited. I mean, uh, Building the, the Accidents on Lotus platform just became a full-time job uh, for us in these last 10 years. And, uh, you know, it sort of led us to neglect <laughs> our filmmaking. Uh, but it was sort of enough of that. Uh, I'm not saying that AT is ever going to be on an autopilot. It can't be. Um, and we're going to have to, it's going to be difficult, it's going to be a challenge this year, balancing our daily responsibilities uh, while we're making a movie. And when we set out to make our next movie, it would have to synchronize with Accidental Talmudist. I mean, we weren't gonna do a movie that had no connection uh, to what we're doing, but it, it's a movie, right? So we're not making a propaganda for Judaism in any way. We're making the most entertaining movie possible. And, uh, you know, if I really think about the kind of movies that I love to watch as a movie lover, uh, they're thrillers, you know, I mean, I'm a big fan of, of Hitchcock, of Tarantino, of Polanski, uh, of, of, you know, some Billy Wilder. I mean, I love all Billy Wilder films, but some of them are thrillers. Uh, Brian De Palma, uh, you know, Coppola. I mean, I mean, the, the big filmmakers and, and I'm not I'm not really a horror guy uh, as, a, as a film watcher, but I really love a great, well-structured, well-paced thriller. And uh, so that's the kind of movie we wanted to make. Uh, and basically what we're doing is a, a mystery thriller. Uh, and the sort of Jewish angle on it uh, is the detective. This is a movie, uh, it's a, we call it a neo-noir or a Western neo-noir set in the high desert of Southern California uh, about a string of murders that appear to be hate crimes uh, until the rabbi of the targeted community investigates uh, and finds a, a, a much deeper, more sinister uh, crime afoot, which the police won't investigate, so he has to. Um, and so it's definitely feels a little bit like North by Northwest, Chinatown, uh, No Country for Old Men, you know, Knives Out, these are influences on it. Um, but COVID was sort of practical for us in the sense that during this period, uh, you know, we have a projector and a screen in our living room and every night is movie night. For the last two years, uh, we've been watching a thriller a day and really studying this genre. And, uh, you know, let's put it this way, we might fall short, 
but it won't be from lack of trying. What we're going for is a top 20 thriller all time. Uh, there's a lot of action, deep characterization, unexpected twists, uh, and real action, uh, reality-based action, I would say. Uh, something we haven't talked about is I'm also part of an organization called Magen Am, uh, Shield of the Nation. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of, of crimes, real crimes, targeting Jews. Uh, you know, after the Poway shooting, uh, you know, in Southern California, it became very real to all of us. And uh, so I've joined a security organization. I've received extensive training. And when I go to synagogue every day and on Shabbos, uh, I carry a gun, you know, and I'm a, I'm a licensed security guard uh, with, you know, have insignia on my arms and a badge uh, and a big, heavy <laughs> gun belt. And I wish it wasn't necessary, uh, but tragically it is in this day and age. And, uh, you know, never again, uh, God willing, you know, Jews will never be slaughtered again, uh, hopefully because we have friends in the world who, you know, realize how awful Jew hatred is against any group, including us, but also never again because we will defend ourselves. And, you know, that's obviously an attitude that Israelis understand uh, and American Jews are coming to understand it. But, uh, you know, but how I've learned uh, to handle my nine millimeter in, uh, in Maganam training is how Rabbi Mo learns to handle his uh, in Guns and Moses. Salvador, this has been a fantastic interview. Thank you so much for the, your time and good luck. Thank you so much, Josh. It's been a pleasure.